Hello again, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. I'm Bob Kaler. My host, my co-host, Stephanie Greenwald, is here with me. Good morning, Stephanie. How are you on this fine December morning? Well, I am just doing so well. Thank you, Bob. It's good to be back in studio all together again. Yeah, it's been a couple of weeks. We took a little bit of a break, and we're wrapping up season one here of our podcast. And I wanted to give people just a little bit of a, of a recap of where we've been since we launched in May. You and I haven't had a chance to talk about this either. So there's some <laughs> fascinating stuff here that uh, today is our 19th episode of the podcast. We launched in mid-May of 2020. Uh, we are now at 16,400 downloads of podcast episodes, which wow. is pretty amazing. Um, our most popular episode was actually our first episode, Where Things Stand with the WCA and, and the denomination. Uh, that one had 1,702 downloads. So, um, but all of them are, are really gaining traction. I mean, I don't think we have any that are under more than 500 or less than 500 downloads. So, so a lot of people are, are connecting with us and uh, subscribing to us and following along as we move through this process. And we kind of expected that, you know, we would be on the other side of general conference at this point, but the interest is still very high. Um, here's the other interesting thing I found as I was doing the stats. Our top five countries. Now, of course, the United States is, is, top country. Mm -hmm. Canada is number two. So we have some Canadian friends up there. <laughs> the UK is number three. I, I want to just ask you to guess what number four is. Any shot? Oh, wow. Africa? It's not in Africa, actually. No. It's actually not a place where I, I think we, I'm not sure we have even a United Methodist presence. Oh, wow. <laughs> number four is Brazil. <laughs> wow. So we have a major following in Brazil. So we say, I don't know how to say it in Portuguese, but uh, we say <laughs> welcome to all of, our, all of our listeners in Brazil. Number five is Belgium. Wow. And um, so we've got, we've got fans everywhere. We do have some in Africa and, and in and just about uh, every continent except Antarctica <laughs> to get the Antarctica contingent going. Maybe that's a church plant, Keith, that we need to work on. There you go. Antarctica church plant. But today we are, we are wrapping up season one with uh, another mailbag with our friend and colleague and president of the Wesleyan Covenant Association, Keith Boyette. So, uh, Keith, uh, we're glad you're with us. Stephanie, uh, you have some, some questions for Keith. I have some questions for Keith. These were sent in, collected um, from a variety of sources, but we wanted to kind of go through them. So why don't you go ahead and launch in there? Let, let, me, let me jump in real quick here, Bob. And just uh, on behalf of the Wesleyan Covenant Association and uh, all of those listeners globally, and by the way, I'm sure we're going to get some penguins eventually to listen to <laughs> But uh, I want to say thanks. Pittsburgh penguins, maybe. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you I go. There Pittsburgh you go. in here. But, uh, but I, I want to thank you and Stephanie uh, for this incredible job that you've done. Um, I don't know that we really could have anticipated what an excellent uh, service this would be to our, our constituency. I want to tell you, just be encouraged. Every Thursday morning when you drop a new episode, I listen to it on my drive into the office. <laughs> uh, I make it a major part of uh, what I want to engage in. The series that you've done have just been outstanding. So thank you so much. Uh, real bonus uh, uh, to our membership and our constituency. Well, it's so nice of you to say, Keith, and I know I can speak for Bob on this one as well, that it's such an honor for us to be a part of this incredible new adventure that we're all going on. And I just, I absolutely love it that we're reaching so many people around the world with something that is really important. And that's part of why I'm so excited about our uh, episode today. I know that our mailbag episode that we did a few months ago uh, was just really helpful to people as we answered questions that really everybody 
everybody is having. Um, and it helps us to feel connected, even though we're apart. And so I just appreciate you offering so much wisdom and expertise on this. You've been such an incredible leader for us in the Wesleyan Covenant Association. So let me dive in into these questions. I know people are anxious to hear your answers. Uh, we have a lot of questions coming in about where things stand, how things might unfold in 2021, um, and how churches and pastors can get ready. So here's a couple about the protocol and general conference. So uh, we get a lot of questions about why theologically traditional churches, clergy, and laity are the ones who would be leaving the UMC. Because some see this as being a little bit unfair that they would have to leave. So why are we the ones that are planning to go? Great question. And we get that all the time. <laughs> I understand why people think uh, it is unfair. I mean, after all, the traditional plan was adopted at the 2019 General Conference. And so the global church spoke through the action of General Conference, and we would anticipate that shouldn't those who disagree with that decision be the ones to leave if they disagree that strongly? Frankly, they should, but, and here's the big but, <laughs> they're not going to leave. Over the years, we traditionalists have demonstrated by filing complaints and pursuing accountability, that there's no way to force them to leave. We can file all the complaints we want to against those who violate our church's discipline, but in so many of the annual conferences, we have bishops and conference leaders who either blatantly ignore valid complaints or who resolve them in such a way that they essentially mock our standards and leave defiant clergy in place. In fact, they style defiant clergy as heroic social justice warriors. And once a case is decided, there's little or no pathway for further appeals. It's what happens when those who are responsible for executing the church's laws, many of our bishops, not only refuse to do so, but in some cases abet and even encourage defiance. So the United Methodist Church is so broken and its leadership is complicit in permitting repeated violations of its discipline with impunity. While this goes on, our local churches suffer, the message and mission of our church is compromised and significant resources are expended which further detracts from achieving our mission. Now we could certainly double down and for the 14th time and 14 general conferences, reaffirm the church's teachings. However, centrist and progressives and many bishops will continue to fight and defy our standards. And in light of this reality, we concluded that the church is so dysfunctional that it's time to break free of this destructive dispute and launch a new church solely focused on the great commission that Jesus has given us to make disciples of all peoples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I see our situation as analogous to the, the biblical situation of Abraham and Lot in Genesis 13. Abraham, as the patriarch of his family, certainly had the right to make the first choice regarding the portion of the land he wanted for himself and his children. He had a right to tell his nephew, Lot, to leave the land he wanted, but Abraham's trust was in God. Abraham walked away from the lot, land Lot chose, even though Lot chose what appeared to be the better portion. Abraham walked away full of faith that God would bless him and his children. By doing so, Abraham separated amicably from Lot and then embraced what God had in store for him. We believe the time has come for such an amicable separation so we can fully and joyfully embrace the great mission that God has for us. That's so good, Keith. I appreciate so much the the relationship that you put there with uh, Abram and Lot. It's uh, it's just very helpful as we look at that. Now, I know as as people are looking towards 2021, we were so hopeful about what would happen in 2020, and so many things have made it so that uh, we were not able to meet with the general conference and 
uh, things have been put on hold. So where do things currently stand with the protocol and general conference and what can we expect in 2021 and what might be the timeline for the launch of the new denomination if the protocol passes? Sure, all of us thought we would be in a different place right now. Oh, that's so true. Uh, we thought we'd be on the other side of general conference with the decision made. Well, the pr protocol legislation is, is pending before general conference. The 15 members of the mediation team, which in includes the president, the immediate past president, and the next president of the Council of Bishops, as well as leaders of the leading traditional centrist and progressive groups in the United Methodist Church remain committed to the protocol and are continuing to work for its adoption and implementation. In fact, the mediation team continues to meet on a very regular basis. We believe that most persons in the church have accepted the reality that separation of the United Methodist Church is necessary and that we should work to achieve an amicable separation as soon as possible. General Conference is scheduled to occur from August the 29th to September the 7th of 2021 in Minneapolis. The Commission on General Conference and its staff are working hard to make that General Conference a reality. One of the factors we cannot control is where the world's response to the coronavirus will be at that time. Well, we're greatly encouraged by recent news about the efficacy and safety of three vaccines, that's very promising. And conditions are improving despite the present surge and an in-person general conference still remains a distinct possibility. Efforts are also underway to explore the option of holding a, a virtual or distributed general conference if an in-person gathering is not possible. I understand that the Commission on General Conference will meet in February and at that time, it will evaluate whether to move forward with the 2021 General Conference in Minneapolis, hold a virtual or distributed conference, or postpone the gathering once again. We're grateful that the Commission is working so hard under very difficult circumstances to ensure that a General Conference has the best chance of occurring. But in any event, all of the work will have been completed so that a new global theologically conservative Methodist church is fully functional upon adoption of the protocol legislation and the church will immediately begin to operate. And we're of course considering the, the contingencies that might have to occur if general conference doesn't come off as it should, but it's too early for us to anticipate what that might look like but we'll be prepared nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And that's very helpful too. So let's, let's assume that we are able to move forward in 2021, either with an in-person uh, general conference or virtual. So can you tell us how delegates would be elected for a convening conference of a new church and who would be making those decisions if the protocol does pass? Sure. We've done a lot of work uh, in preparing for that transitional period. As, as I've shared previously, a transitional leadership council for the new denomination has been meeting almost weekly since March of this year. Uh, they've been developing a transitional discipline that will govern the new church from its legal formation, presumably in September of 2021, until its convening conference, which will likely occur in the fall of 2022 at the earliest. We, we anticipate that some annual conferences in the United Methodist Church will vote to align with the new denomination as an annual conference. The churches in those annual conferences will stay together as an annual conference during the transitional period. Other churches that align with the new denomination will not come with their annual conferences. The Transitional Leadership uh, Council will organize these churches into provisional annual conferences during the transitional period. Delegates to the convening conference will be elected by these continuing and provisional annual conferences. The TLC, the Transitional Leadership Council, will determine the formula for the allocation of delegates among the annual conferences to ensure fair representation. So just a, a quick 
follow up on that, Keith. The, um, the Transitional Leadership Council is working on a transitional discipline. And then there's also the discipline that the WCA has worked on. Um, those are in many ways similar documents, but in some ways different. So can you just, just to clarify for folks how, how those will, will sequence and how they'll work? Sure. We've dealt with this, uh, what I have called a chicken and egg problem of people wanting to know what they're joining, uh, but having significant input into this new thing. And so we have, we've created a transitional leadership council, and it is adopting a transitional doctrines and discipline to get us from creation to the convening conference. Our goal there has been to provide a bridge uh, and not make long-term um, determinations that will govern the new denomination, but have enough to help people understand where we're headed and allow the convening conference to make those significant decisions that will set the course of the new denomination. Now, the WCA has devoted months and countless hours of working groups and committees and the council itself in developing a draft book of doctrines and discipline for the new denomination. And we fully anticipate that where that document diverges from the transitional discipline that is being developed, that it'll be a legislative proposal to the uh, new, new denomination at its convening conference. Uh, and so, um, so uh, the, the delegates to the convening conference will have an opportunity to vote you know, on what that book of doctrines and discipline will be after that point. That's helpful. I just wanted to make sure folks had a, a picture of sure. kind of how those work together because there's a lot of stuff going on in the background constantly uh, where it seems that the rest of the world is at full stop. We've been at full go uh, this whole time, you know, working on that. And so we have this, this timeline that we're working on through 2021. And let's assume that that, that continues and we're going to move forward. There are going to be a lot of pastors and churches that are going to be making some tough decisions in the latter part of the new year. And you mentioned specifically those whose annual conferences will not be joining the new denomination. I'm certainly in that situation here in the West. And so we have a lot of churches and pastors who are concerned about bishops and conference staff interfering in their decision-making process, um, questions about clergy and churches that may be going in different directions when the time comes um, on the other side of general conference. So uh, just to, once again, to give a brief outline of the process. This is a question we get quite a lot. The process of how a local church will make decisions about denominational alignment. Sure. Um, let me briefly try to summarize that for folks. There's actually two ways that a local church could end up aligned with the new denomination. First, they could end up aligned with the new denomination because their annual conference votes to align with the new denomination. Um, that vote, uh, it, it requires a 57% vote of the annual conference and is triggered by a motion to align with the new denomination that is supported by 20% of the annual conference. It can occur at a regular session of the annual conference or at a special session called specifically for that purpose. But a local, and so if the, if the annual conference votes to align, all of the churches in that annual conference move with that uh, annual conference into the new denomination unless they vote, the churches vote after that to remain in the United Methodist Church. That's one way local churches can end up. The other way is for the local church itself to take a vote on alignment, quite apart from the annual conference. And it's important to underscore that the local church can take this vote without waiting for a decision of the annual conference. So the annual conference may decide they're never gonna take a vote because there's not enough people moving for that to occur. But the local church can go ahead and make its own independent decision. So local church is gonna to have to decide whether they're going to wait for their annual conference to make a decision or whether they're going to 
make it on their own. If the annual conference votes not to align or the church moves ahead on its own, the process and the protocol is that um, the, the leadership body of the local church determines the threshold vote that is to occur in order for um, the church to align with the new denomination. It can either be a simple majority plus one or a two-thirds uh, vote of the professing members of the local church. Then a church conference is to be held. That church conference is to be held within 60 days of the request for a vote on alignment. And by the way, that vote on alignment, that request can be made by a, a, a group of members of a, of a local church, quite apart from the leadership body. The discipline provides um, that, that members of a local church can request a church conference. All professing members of the church are in, entitled to be in attendance at that uh, meeting of the church conference. And if the church conference votes by the percentage that the leadership group has determined, then, um, then the church aligns with the new denomination. So in preparing for that potential vote, one of the concerns we hear often is that there may be opportunities for bishops or local pastors or district superintendents to kind of subvert that process or, or to work around it in some way. Um, what kind of assurance can we give to folks that they'll have the opportunity to make those decisions? How can they best prepare themselves for making those decisions and know what their rights are in the midst of it? Sure. Well, the protocol legislation itself uh, contains uh, provisions that require uh, bishops, annual conference leadership, clergy, local church leaders to distribute literature to all of the local churches from any of the proposed new denominations under the protocol directly to members of those local churches. So one, one aspect of this is ensuring that information gets communicated to the local church. That's built into the protocol expressly requiring that such information be distributed by the, the institution itself, number one. Number two, um, I'm confident that uh, every one of the new expressions will uh, be independently reaching out to local churches, making sure that information gets there, as well as the institution itself uh, sharing information. The procedures for calling for a, a church conference um, are, are in the discipline right now. And as I mentioned, individual members can do that. It, it takes 10% of the professing members to make a request for a church conference that um, doesn't require the pastor's consent, doesn't require the leadership of the local church's consent. Uh, and so people need to exercise uh, that right. Uh, be aware that they have that right and be able be willing to exercise it. I, I believe that uh, knowledge is power. And so uh, we want to make sure, uh, and if you're a leader in a local church and you, you are concerned about this, you want to make sure that there's going to be alignment vote, then you need to ensure that as many of your fellow laity as possible know the issues, know the options, know the procedures that are available. This is the best way to stay informed by becoming a member of the WCA. Uh, you, you, get, you get frequent updates uh, on what's happening in, in the, the denomination and this process. You get connected to other like-minded people, other local churches in your area. And um, we'll be providing support for churches as they move through that period, for individual members as they move through that period. But it's gonna take us owning the responsibility and speaking into a system and not being apathetic in the process. Mm -hmm. 
That's so true. And it's helpful to have that encouragement. Okay. And now we've got some more questions, which uh, kind of turn us to the issues of money and property, as well as clergy deployment. So can you give us a sketch of how much a local church might expect to pay when joining the new denomination? Is there a joining fee? And what about apportionments? What will they look like? Well, the good news is there's no fee to join the new denomination. Mm -hmm. There's no upfront fee that has to be paid. Churches which align with the new denomination will contribute the resources necessary to fund its operation during that transitional period. The Transitional Leadership Council has not decided yet what those sums will be, although we remain committed to funding for operations of the church beyond the local church being not more than 50% of what a local church is apportioned in the UM church. Mm. The caveat here is that if a local church comes with its annual conference, obviously it will still be subject to that annual conference's budget. And all we then have control over is how much they would have to pay beyond the annual conference for general conference uh, operations, general church operations. Again, our commitment is to keep that below 50% of what they're paying to the general church right now. What it pays to its annual conference will be determined by the annual conference of which it's a part. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, the convening conference is going to determine connectional funding for the new uh, denomination. Our goal at the convening conference is to ensure that such funding from local churches be not more than 50% of what they're currently paying for those kinds of purposes. And I'm confident that it will be the case because the laity and pastors who will represent local churches and annual conferences at the convening conference, I believe will insist mm -hmm. that the general church be lean, nimble, built for fulfilling its mission at the local church level. I don't know of anyone connected with the Wesleyan Covenant Association the Transitional Leadership Council, or traditionalists in general who have an interest in replicating the top-heavy, bureaucratic, costly, and largely liberal-leaning institutional structure of the past 50 years. The delegates to the convening conference, I know, will insist on a lean, nimble structure that is accountable to the local churches that we will serve. Mm. Well, I have to say that is music to my ears. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So in terms of property, uh, the new denomination will not have a trust clause, but a lien on the real estate of member congregations. So how does that work? And what is the difference between a lien and the trust clause that we have now? So this uh, becomes a kind of technical and complicated but it's let good me thing try. we have a lawyer here then. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, lawyers only make it more complicated <laughs> and technical. But I'm going to try to share what I can so that we all understand. The lien is to ensure a local church's payment of its continuing liability for pension payments. For the legacy plans of the UM church, those plans that already exist, and that pastors have already earned benefits from. Um, these, are, these are plans that each local church have a responsibility to fund under the United Methodist Church's Book of Discipline. Now, if a church does not have those kinds of liabilities, there'll be no lien. A lien is not gonna be placed on every church. It will only be for those churches that have this continuing liability. If a church satisfies those liabilities at any point, the lien will be released. The lien will only be recorded against the real estate of the congregation, and the lien can only be enforced if the required payments are not made. The purpose of the lien is to ensure that the church is able to live up to its commitments to its clergy who have earned pension benefits over their years of service to the church. And the liability which the lien secures is defined and known. Now a trust, and we're not going to have a trust in the new denomination, there'll be no trust clause. A trust is much broader. It applies to both real estate and other property of the church, including bank accounts and investments. 
the trust is triggered by any transaction involving the church's property unrelated to any indebtedness that the church might be ha might have and it can be exercised for any reason not just because the church is not satisfied and indebtedness the trust grants the general church a say in every decision made by the local church about what it proposes to do with its property a trust is not associated with a particular defined and known liability. It's all encompassing, while a lien is limited specifically to the indebtedness it secures. If and when a lien is enforced, it's only able to be enforced for the amount of the outstanding indebtedness, if any. And if there's no liability, it can't be enforced. When the trust is enforced, it covers everything to which the trust applies. And all of that property goes to the beneficiary of the trust. In the case of the United Methodist Church, it, it would go to the United Methodist Church. Um, in the United Methodist Church, many have felt that the trust has been weaponized to hold churches captive. A lien can't be weaponized because the liability is defined and known and exist at the time the lien is created and it's only triggered by one event the failure to pay an indebtedness that is owed i'm confident that there'll be no trust clause in a new theologically conservative methodist church and so local churches will own all of their property and assets outright and it would only have a lien to make sure that we fulfill prior commitments made to pastors regarding the funding of their pensions Personally, I think the new church will only rarely have to exercise a lien because the vast majority of local traditionalist churches believe it's right and good to fulfill their prior responsibilities that they've made for funding clergy pension plans. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. I'm so glad that you explained the difference there between those two. It sounds like a really great change and, and very, very needed. Uh, and how about the deployment of clergy? So the original draft of the Book of Doctrine and Discipline had more of a modified sent appointment system uh, because the bishop still makes the ultimate appointment. While the Transitional Leadership Council has hinted at more of a straight appointment system with more consultation. So where do things stand now with clergy deployment? Sure. That's a great question, and I know many people are, are very interested in this, especially mm -hmm. clergy. Uh, the transitional discipline only governs our processes during that transitional period between launch and, of the new denomination and its convening conference. While there'll be some uh, changes in clergy deployment during that period, many churches will continue right on with their current uh, pastoral appointments. So we're anticipating that there'll be few clergy deployment changes in that period. When the group of 30 leaders and bishops met in Atlanta in March and agreed to one unified vision for a new global theologically conservative Methodist church, part of what the group agreed to was to retain the existing appointment system during this transitional period with enhanced consultation on the part of the bishop and the local church. And so during this transitional period, things will operate similarly to the way they are now, but there are built-in procedures to ensure that meaningful consultation occurs between the bishop and the local church. Now the WCA's draft doctrines and discipline essentially proposes a two-track appointment system. In one track, which we call the sourced track, the appointments would pretty much occur as they do in the United Methodist Church, uh, but with more meaningful consultation occurring. The second track envisioned by the WCA, which we call the resourced track, will provide for significantly greater involvement on the part of the local church in the decision on who will be its pastor. In both systems, the bishop still is the one who makes the appointment. That's why it's still a sent system, but the role of the local church is enhanced. We believe 
that the laity of local churches ought to have meaningful input into who their pastor is going to be. The convening conference will decide whether it wants to adopt the two-track system proposed by the WCA for appointments or stay with something more like the appointment system that will exist during the transitional period or even something entirely new and different. Um, there's a lot of creative thinking that can go into this area. Just to follow up on that too, Keith, just so people have an idea what the interim period is, we're kind of anticipating a convening conference in late 2022. Is that at the earliest? At That's the earliest. Right. So, so you're looking at a year uh, at a at a minimum, uh, most likely for for that interim period to kind of be. Uh, if in fact 2021 general conference meets this summer and so forth, we're looking at about a year, perhaps a little bit more um, of an interim period during that time. That's exactly right, Bob. Yeah, and the other question that I was thinking of as as we were talking about this is about guaranteed appointment, because I know that's a question that comes up too. Are we going to have guaranteed appointment? Of course, the answer to that probably is we don't know yet because we haven't had the convening conference, but but what's your sense about that as, you're, as you've been talking through it with the Transitional Leadership Council and WCA Council? Well, I think anyone who's been around the church for a while would know that both in 2012 and 2016, proposals came to the General Conference of the United Methodist Church to do with uh, do away with guaranteed appointments. And uh, it was uh, literally a handful of votes that kept it from being done away with in 2016. So I believe that, I don't believe any expression that emerges from the current United Methodist Church will be able to guarantee the appointment of clergy. Uh, hey, it's a wonderful thing to have, but it, it, it creates all kinds of problems. And there is no other profession mm -hmm. that I know of that guarantees employment for persons of that profession. Uh, clergy have been in the United Methodist Church have been a rare bird in that regard. But I, I don't believe that anyone who is, uh, has the skills and grace and calling to be a pastor will lack for an opportunity to serve in the post-separation uh, world. Uh, I believe that uh, we're, we're, we're both uh, anticipating a significant number of churches that will be looking for pastors as part of this process. And we're excited about the possibility of planting new churches uh, as we move into the future. So I think it's a red herring, as they say. It's, uh, it's something that I understand people are concerned about, but after all, our trust should not be in those kinds of guarantees, but in the Lord who has called us to the ministry that we've been deployed for. Yeah, and I think it's natural that, you know, we have lots of questions about money and property and clergy deployment, because those are, those are things that, that are concerns for people. And, and they're very important. But, but I also th think we need to talk more and more about mission and opportunities that we have in this new denominational structure. I'm, those are the things that I'm most excited about as I sit in these meetings and so forth, that, that the, the nuts and bolts of property and clergy deployment and those kinds of things are vital building blocks, but really they are the means to a larger end, which is our mission, our focus, church planting, disciple making. So I, I know I've been part of some of these conversations. You've certainly been part of a lot of them. Um, can you paint for our folks who are listening a picture of the kind of things that really excite you about being part of the new denomination in terms of its mission and its, its outreach and its, its disciple making capacity and what's been happening behind the scenes to make that a reality? Sure. Yeah, um, if someone had told me four years ago, that um, what was involved in, in creating a new denomination, I probably would have run as quickly as I could to Antarctica <laughs> to, to avoid having this responsibility. And you could there have been our only listener. I, know. I would have been there. I would have <laughs> gladly been the church planter for Antarctica. Okay. But, uh, but uh, it, I mean, it's a daunting task, and the nuts and bolts are important, like you say. I mean, that's what 
what we engage every day. And a, a, a significant part of our time in the early days of the WCA were devoted to that. But that work is largely done now. We, we are ready, we have the structure and the form, we know where we're headed, we know what the nuts and bolts are. And what has really been exciting over this last year is to see us engage what the vision and ministry of this new denomination will be. As, as many of our listeners will recall, uh, we formed six ministry task forces uh, and those task forces have, first, there's been an incredible number of people that were part of their meetings uh, who had input into the reports they came up with. And every one of those task forces have developed incredible ministry plans for the new denomination that have been presented to the WCA Council, endorsed, and are being shared now with the Transitional Leadership Council. Um, Bob, you chaired the Task Force on Accountable Discipleship. There is no question that one of the uh, shortcomings of the United Methodist Church is that while our mission is to make disciples, um, we don't make disciples. We, we, I guess we try to make people who will attend church <laughs> or that sort of thing, you know. And, and um, uh, we are so excited about the opportunity to help people be formed as followers of Christ, to be disciples of Christ, to be in meaningful community where uh, iron sharpens iron, as uh, Proverbs says, you know, where, where uh, people uh, are transformed uh, from where they have been increasingly into the likeness and character of the life of Christ, where, where people have an opportunity to live out the gospel in all of its fullness and then become makers of disciples themselves. I mean, that is what Wesley was all about. It wasn't about just um, uh, operating a church. It was about spreading scriptural holiness uh, uh, across the nation and for mm -hmm. us, the nations. And so um, that discipleship uh, component is huge. And, and um, as with each of these different areas that I'll touch on quickly, uh, we're not waiting for the launch of the new denomination to get about doing that. I mean, we're encouraging uh, churches that are part of our movement right now to begin addressing these discipleship strategies that this task force has developed. But that will be an absolutely key part of who we are going forward. We recognize that we're going to have thousands of churches that already exist in the new denomination that um, all, all of us need constant revitalization. I do. Mm -hmm. uh, each of you do. Our churches need revitalization. Um, they need to continually invite the work of the Holy Spirit and capture the um, vision of the Holy Spirit as we continue to live into what God's doing. Well, our task force on church revitalization has prepared plans for revitalization of small membership, um, mid-sized churches, and large membership churches of clergy and laity, uh, so that we recapture the primary focus uh, of the church, of, of, of introducing people to Jesus and helping them grow. And, and that task force is not waiting for us to arrive. They've launched a pilot project that some 50 churches are going to be participating in in January of 2021 uh, to begin the Nehemiah journey of revitalization so that they're, they're, they're making progress toward what we see happening as the new denomination launches. Our church multiplication task force has an incredible vision for um, multiplying our churches uh, globally. Uh, in fact, um, Bob, you're part of a 25-member cohort of leaders that is currently participating in a multipliers learning community with Exponential. Uh, we see that group multiplying over time so that uh, we are, we're focused on bringing uh, the church to communities where the church is absent um, from, from a theologically conservative Wesleyan perspective. Um, our Global Missional Partnership Task Force brought one of uh, an incredibly exciting vision for the way in which we will partner with one another around the world to, to uh, advance the gospel globally. 
And again, aspects of that report are being implemented right now in advance of the launch of the new denomination. I just received the report uh, on, on late last week from our Ministry with Marginalized Communities report. I got to tell you, they produced the longest report we've received in history, a hundred pages long. Mm. But the the depth of their engagement of how we can be a church that reaches to the margins of our societies, of our cultures, and shares the hope of Jesus Christ. Our, our, we, we recognize that our church is going to have to be increasingly diverse ethnically. We have a, an amazing task force that's meeting on racial and ethnic equality right now, uh, composed of uh, largely persons who would be considered in ethnic minority uh, populations in the United States. And then finally, you know, Ministry for Youth and Young Adults. We're excited about the opportunity to engage youth, uh, to engage um, students on college and university campuses, and to engage persons as they begin to enter the workforce. I mean, these are the things that we're to be about. The nuts and bolts just simply provide undergirding and structure for, for, to enable that stuff. But it's, that's not what we serve, not the structure. We serve a risen Lord who is excited about uh, transforming the world to God's original design and inviting us to be partners with him in that. Oh, I just love that, Keith. And, you know, I, this final question, I feel like in that I'm going to ask, you've really already answered it with saying all of these wonderful things that the WCA is at work doing right now. It's not that we're just waiting for the change to happen. We're actually at work making a difference in the world, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And, but for those people who are listening, who um, are silent supporters, they have not joined the WCA yet. They, they're just kind of waiting around to see what happens. And now things have been, uh, you know, put on hold even further, what would you say to them about why they should go ahead and join the WCA right now? Sure. Well, we've accomplished so much in just four short years. It's hard to imagine what God has done through so many surrendered servants. And like I said earlier, it's because of the diligent and faithful work of hundreds of people associated with the WCA the Transitional Leadership Council, that we will be prepared to launch a, a new global theologically conservative Methodist church. But we still have so much more that we need to accomplish. Um, we have to turn our attention to informing local churches about the new church. That's going to take uh, a, a, an army of people being engaged for that. It's going to take resources to produce the materials. Uh, to help churches understand how they'll make that transition from the United Methodist Church to a new denomination, to fund the work of that church in its transitional period, and then getting everyone ready for a convening conference. This work is being resourced by the WCA. No one else is doing this work. No one else is funding this work. And a significant part of the WCA's funding comes from the fees of members individuals, clergy and laity, churches that have said, you know what, we're going to put a stake in the ground and we're going to declare this is where we stand and we're going to be part of this, making a difference. Furthermore, the WCA members speak into what we're doing through electing delegates to our global legislative assembly. We're excited to gather in Montgomery, Alabama on April 30th and May 1st through their participation in regional chapters, local churches, Individual members have a voice and a vote in helping build this new global church focused on spreading the good news that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Lord. Mm -hmm. Our current members are warm-hearted, passionate followers of Jesus who long for a church focused on shining the light of Christ in an often dark world. The more people learn about who we are and our passion for our mission, the more they want to join us as well. The work of the WCA is doing right now is absolutely critical. As I said, no one else is doing it, and we want you to be part of the team. We want you to be resourced and have input into what we're doing. So I just would invite our listeners, if you are one of those silent supporters, well, we're grateful that you're a supporter, but we ask you to step up and declare where you are 
and be part of this great movement of God. Well, I second that as well, Keith. And I always just count myself so blessed when I get to be in your presence, even if it's just virtually. So we just want to say a big word of thanks to you for taking time out of your day to help us to understand these really important issues. And thank you so much for your leadership and for all that you do for so many people. We just really appreciate you. Thank you, Stephanie. Mm -hmm. Well, Bob, tell us what we have to look forward to. Well, uh, I'm sure we'll do another mailbag as we get into the new year, because there's always mail coming in for, with questions for Keith. And, and as we go into this process in 2021, there's going to be a lot more question. And that leads us to season two of the podcast, which will launch in January. And during that season, we're going to get into more of the work of these task forces and some of the parts of the discipline that people have questions about. Um, we've, already, we've already had one with Leah Hitty Gregory on the Church Revitalization Task Force. Uh, we're lining up some others uh, with, on church planting and, and ministry with the marginalized and so forth. So we're really looking forward to getting into the weeds a little bit with those task forces and to think about those kind of plans for the future, as well as as we get closer to General Conference we'll be getting more into the nuts and bolts of how that's going to work, what's happening on the ground, and so forth. My hope is that uh, we'll have a podcast presence at General Conference and be able to uh, broadcast from there so that you'll get the latest up-to-date information, uh, interviews with those who are making decisions and so forth, whether it's virtually or whether it's in person in Minneapolis, we'll be We'll be on the ground doing that, um, as well as at the global gathering at the end of April. Uh, there is so much great stuff to talk about and so many great people to talk to. We've had a tremendous year, even though 2020, most people want to see it be gone and never spoken of again. Um, we, we did accomplish a lot. And in some ways, I think, in a backhanded way, and this is the way they usually come, it's a gift from God to give us more time to prepare and mm -hmm. to consider. And, um, and I feel like going into 2021, we have a lot better idea about where we're going and, and, um, and what that will look like in the future. So we're looking forward to talking to those who are helping to plan this. As Keith said, there are a lot of folks who are involved who are not sort of upfront, but working behind the scenes and doing vitally important work. So we're gonna make sure we, we highlight them for you. We wanna remind you too, that you can send us your questions and comments via email at podcast at wesleyandcovenant.org. There's also uh, our, our Twitter feed at WCA pod. Make sure you go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. Get to automatic download, that does help us in the search terms, as well as leave us a review, because that does help drive more traffic to our site. And we anticipate there being a lot more people who are gonna wanna jump on board during this year as we move toward General Conference. We look forward to seeing you again in 2021 for season two of Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. We'll see you then.